This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and, of course, around the rest of the world. And this is a conversation that I've been looking forward to having for a long time because we can range widely. Polly Toynbee, the Guardian columnist, has written a book, An Uneasy Inheritance, My Family and Other Radicals. It's a book partly about her family, but with the theme of class running through it. And it combines the sort of novelistic characteristics of some of the people who feature with deep thoughts about class and politics. Uh, So we can talk about that, obviously, and perhaps reflect on the current political situation as well. Polly Tomby, thanks so much for joining us. Could I begin by asking where the book came from? Did someone come up to you and say, why don't you write an autobiography? And you said, I won't do that. I would like to do it only by exploring the theme of class at the same time. Is that how I'm just guessing? No, it began really a long time ago uh, when I was making a BBC programme called The Class Ceiling about class. Uh, It was a series. And as part of this, I thought, I'll just go out and talk to people in the street, anybody I come across, high, low, wherever, and say, tell me about your first experience of class. When did you first feel aware of either being posh or not posh enough? And the fascinating thing is that if you try that as an experiment, everybody has a really good story to tell of embarrassments one way or the other. Of course, being too posh is only a social embarrassment. Being not posh enough can be a real deep injury, the injuries of class. And uh, so then the producer said to me, well, go on, talk about your own class, at which point I kind of clammed up. So do I I really have to? And then I thought, well, anybody listening to my voice on Radio 4 will have a pretty damn good guess as to what my social class is. And uh, so I gave a sort of brief resume of saying, well, for generations back, we've been writers, historians, uh, professors, administrators, all professional, all secure, all well-paid, all very middle class, sometimes even upper middle class, uh, a life of immense privilege that I've been brought up into. And that sort of got me thinking about these people and how they felt, because the other thing is, of course, that they were all also on the left. They were all liberals or leftists, so they were Irish home rulers, anti-colonials, anti-capital punishment, uh, pro-universal suffrage, They were socialists, communists, social democrats, 
and all felt quite uncomfortable about their privilege and how to cope with it. And the fact that wherever you go, Tories will say, as they say to me all the time, champagne socialist, hypocrite. And how do you cope with that? So I thought, I want to write a book about this. I want to look at how they coped with it not very well, perhaps, how I cope with it. How are we supposed to think about it? Because presumably these Tories say, well, if you're middle class, you should, and if you're well paid, you should be a Tory because then you can protect your own and you'd be on the right side. You're some kind of a class traitor, which is absurd. And in, in exploring the way, we'll come to the way you've addressed some of these issues, but in exploring the way some of your family have addressed them, I mean, I, the most interesting, I think, is your father, Philip who uh, was a writer, a journalist, um, but ended up setting up this commune as a way, I suppose, of addressing what he felt would be he didn't want to make his privileges exclusive. So he formed a commune where anyone could just turn up uh, and you write about it. With, it's very funny. In the end, it's quite sad because it doesn't work out. But it is a, the most astonishing attempt to sort of say, right, I've been privileged, I'm going to do this. My father tended to go for most extreme uh, solutions to almost everything. He was a communist until the Hitler-Stalin pact. Then he was always a socialist. He was uh, one of the founders of CND. He always believed the world was about to come to an end. Um, and he when it came to thinking about how do you live the good life, I thought, well, the only thing to do is to share everything, to have a commune. So my poor stepmother saw her house being cut up into little cubicles and lots of kind of hippie types turning up. He advertised in the alternative press, anyone who wants to come and work in an agricultural community, uh, you know, come and join us in the Barnhouse community. And it began with some people, you know, of very good intent, but increasingly they were people who were into meditation and and spiritual things and not really into digging <laughs> or, or cows or uh, all of the hard graft it takes. I mean, subsistence farming is incredibly hard, which is why most people give it up as soon as they possibly can around the world. So he ended up being really the only one who did any digging. And it got more and more chaotic. And in the end, a sort of religious maniac turned up who finally blew the whole thing apart totally. And he was very sad about it. Mm. But he took his money back. He took the house back. He had intended to give it to all of them. But when it came to it, this ramshackle lot of people who came and went all the time, there wasn't really anybody to donate it to. The religious so, maniac sounded quite sinister, actually. I think you tracked the religious maniac down, didn't you, as to what happened to him next. But uh, yes, he that was another sort of detour in this extraordinary yeah. A range of characters and stories. It was extraordinary because he turned, turned five years later turned up in the press as somebody who had murdered someone by doing a, a woman a really violent exorcism Incredible. but killed her and he Incredible. went to prison. Yeah, yeah. This, what happens in this book is every now and again you say, oh, that happened. Wow. You know. <laughs> now, now, what's really interesting is so you write about your father's attempt to address some of these issues with the commune. And then, and I, I spoke to you about this before and apparently it wasn't a deliberate construct you actually come on to how you deal with some of these issues because unlike i think virtually every journalist i know including on the left who kind of write from their pretty lofty office or whatever you know about left-wing issues you went to work twice in in jobs that were badly paid 
to experience it for real. And although uh, it's a wholly different thing to the commune, it, I can see how you're your father's daughter in that sense. You know, you you didn't want to just write. You wanted to do more than that. And that was what you did. Well, in the beginning, when I started out in journalism, um, I'd written a novel, not a very good one, and I'd been writing for magazines and I got a job uh, on The Observer. But I took time off and thought, actually, I'm no good as a reporter because I don't know anything about this country I live in, you know been to Oxford University, only know people of my family's social class. I don't know the country geographically or socially. So I set off for a while and took jobs around the country. I worked in Birmingham in a Lucas car parts factory, in Unilever in Port Sunlight. Uh, I joined the Women's Army for a bit. I worked in a Lion's Cake factory and I worked in a, in a hospital as what was then a ward orderly just really feeling my way and recording what people were saying, what the jobs were like and how hard the jobs were and how little people were paid, but in a quite unsociological way because I didn't really know what I was looking for. It was very descriptive. But then I went back and did it 30 years, just over 30 years later. Labour was in power. They'd introduced a minimum wage, and I thought, let's go back and have a look, see what's changed, what's got better. But this time I was rather more scientific about it. I lived in a council flat, which I was able to let because it was being done up. Uh, on the other side of Clapham, I lived in the posh end of Clapham. That was 10 minutes away, but a world away at the other end of Clapham. And took whatever jobs I could get from the local job centre. So I ended up uh, being a dinner lady and I worked in a, a, a cake packing factory and a call centre. Most of the factories that I'd worked in before had gone. What had happened during that time is factories disappeared. There were no Lucas factories left in Birmingham. There had been 11. And um, I went back to what turned out to be the same hospital that I'd worked in before. Now, the importance of having this comparison was that I could take my payslip from this hospital, which Chelsea and Westminster now had been called St. Stephen's, and the one from back there, and took them to the Institute for Fiscal Studies and said, right, tell me in real terms what's happened to my pay in that time. We now got a minimum wage, you know, is it better? They said it was around about a third less. And that explains what's happened to inequality, to the, the, the widening gaps during my lifetime. How would that happen? Well, nearly all of the jobs I took, I kept trying to work for the state, either as a dinner lady or in a care home. Or, there were no manual jobs left for the state because they'd all been outsourced. So that meant they were not unionized. It was working for agencies or working for outsourcing companies. I worked for Carillion. And that was their way of holding down wages. And that's what had happened. And I think that made it all very real, just how shocking it was that in the 1980s, not only did the lid blow off the top, big bang and all of that, people start earning astronomical sums, but the holding down of the middle and below. A lot of your columns now, you, unlike a lot of columnists, you read data, you speak to people. So I suppose it could be argued you could have found out all this without actually experiencing it. Did the experience change the way you wrote and saw politics and, 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 and saw life more widely or not? I think it certainly does because if you go and interview, if I'd just gone and interviewed people doing uh, you know, low-paid mm. jobs, I wouldn't have known exactly what questions to ask. 
for the second time I did it, I was adding up every penny I earned and working out what can you do on those earnings. You can't travel very fast. You have to take a job on you. You can't travel on the tube. You can't go swimming. You can't go to the mm. cinema. You can eat lentils and rice and an occasional orange, but... The pay, if you can't, is really very little. Now, I wouldn't have known to say, for instance, uh, to somebody who just moved into a flat, have you got curtains? And I realized I would never be able to buy curtains, let alone a curtain rail. Um, I realized that when I had a headache when I was working in the hospital, I thought, I'll go out and get some Nurofen. I suddenly realized Nurofen is much too expensive. You can't possibly. You can just manage a bit of own, own brand. Um, these physical practical things you wouldn't necessarily think to ask and somebody wouldn't necessarily think to tell you because they might just take it for normal. So buying a being a middle class person, I am saying to my readers, come with me. It's we're going on a journey. We're going to look at how other people's like you assume that most people who read books are going to be people who are on the whole middle class. It's a kind of travelogue. Come on this journey and look at what people's lives are like what you can afford, not afford. I mean, I didn't have my children with you, but imagine having children living like that who want pizzas, who want, uh, you know, branded trainers or whatever. And I think through the experience is not to say, I know what it's like to be low paid, but it's to find out those granular things. I have no idea what it's like to be low paid because never in my life for one day have I ever felt insecure. Mm. I mean, mm. we know now that most... That something like half of uh, all workers have only one or two months pay in reserve. So if they mm. lose their job, they're really in trouble. I have never felt remotely insecure. And I think without that insecurity, you can't experience yeah. it at all. Yeah. Yeah, it just it changes your mindset about virtually everything because you have to calculate at every minute of the day. Now, a lot of the characters who appear in the book, you can sort of see the connection. So your grandfather was a world famous writer. He got on the cover of Time magazine. So Philip becomes a writer. You're a writer and so on. But as part of the novelistic quality of your book, you have characters who don't fit in. You know what? Your grandmother, Rosalind, you open the chapter about her by saying, I choose not to inherit anything from my obnoxious grandmother, Rosalind. <laughs> now, in, in the big figures in the book, she's big, but as a sort of has a monstrous quality to her yes. and was a Tory. Or yes. became a Tory. She became a Catholic. Yeah, a she was Catholic, very right, and very yeah. snobbish. She probably was a Tory. She was she was poisoned. So she was married to your grandfather. To, to Arnold, Arnold Toynbee made the bad mistake yeah. of marrying her, and she always felt it was a mistake because she felt she'd married beneath her. She felt she came from you know a twig of the aristocracy, and that uh, he was beneath her. She was so snobbish. <laughs> Unlike all the rest of my family, she had these illusions. The thing about aristocracy is that it leaves behind huge numbers of people who were. Slightly related. I mean, my great great grandmother was the Countess of Carlisle living in Castle Howard, but she had 11 children. Now, think how many in a family tree below that would all have vague fantasies that they come from Castle Howard. It's, you know, by then probably hundreds. But she <laughs> suffered from that sense of having fallen out of something higher. The rest of my family, absolutely not at all. 
And But you never met her, did you, I think? I never met her because she didn't like my father at all, treated him very badly. She was a terrible mother, uh, was really, really disruptive to my father and his brothers. His older brother killed himself. He and his younger brother were alcoholics, and she was a monster mother. But she particularly disliked my father. She thought he was actually evil incarnate. And when she joined the Catholic Church, completely spurned him. But, brutal. And uh, really brutal. Do you think, I mean, alcohol plays quite a big part in this book. There are lots of alcoholics. and um, in, in the case of your father and his brother, you think it's it was because of the mother or not so much the other theme of the book. We've been talking about the, the stresses of being privileged, but on the left and so on. It was the mother that drove your father to drink. I think he felt so. And he ended his life as a very, very severe, severe depressive. He always felt it was his mother. And I think she was very damaging. I mean, she cast him out at six and he went to a whole succession of appalling prep schools that he kept being thrown out of. And the worse he behaved, the more she hated him. And he had a horrendous childhood. But um, I think there was a whole kind of syndrome there about drink. It's very hard to tell because my family went in sort of cycles. Some were temperance. Mm. My great-great-grandmother smashed all the bottles of wine in Castle Howard. She was totally temperance and went around closing all the pubs in Yorkshire <laughs> where she would get her hands on them. Um, and my great-grandfather, Gilbert Murray, he was temperance as well because his father had died of drink. So it so kind of goes in the circles. Yeah. And you think, well, is the psychological, is it is it genetic? I think there can be genetic dispositions, but very much um, shored up by your own experiences. There's a whole array of uh, uh, characters in the book, but you say, and, and it's famous now, but <laughs> you went out with someone related to Boris Johnson. You saw Boris Johnson nude when he was six months <laughs> old, which has generated uh, an understandable fascination. I mean, <laughs> but I mean, there the could have been quite a connection between you and him, couldn't there, if you'd gone ahead with that relationship? Well, yes, <laughs> if I could have been his aunt, book. think you, of that. God, you would have been his aunt. Yeah. I would have been very yeah. bossy aunt. <laughs> uh, yes, I went out with uh, with with his uncle, who was an extremely nice man. Ended badly, um, but he did take me to see his sister Charlotte, who was had just had this baby and was living in Oxford. I think a rather miserable life, married to Stanley, and she was sort of at home looking after the baby. And there was this fat pink naked baby <laughs> lying on a bath mat and kicking his legs in the air with the shock of bright. Uh, yellow hair and I, I, think I you, sort of didn't like the look of him really yeah, you put in the book I think he hasn't changed much <laughs> it's true and your impression of him hasn't changed he much. hasn't changed much what's it's, funny is that the Daily Telegraph the other day picked up this story and they had a little thing even on their front page and they said this explains why she doesn't like Boris Johnson <laughs> <laughs> there might be other reasons as if I, as if I needed another reason This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, welcome back to Rock and Roll Politics. Uh, Before we return to our conversation with Polly, um, I want to thank those of you who subscribe to Patreon. Thank you generally. Uh, But we're giving a name check to you all over time because you make it all possible. So I want to thank, at this point, Andrew Flannery. Hi, Andrew. Uh, Alex Hydes. Andrew Hawes. Kevin Collins. Ruth Chadwick. Thank you all very much. What's interesting in terms of when you write about yourself and and, and you're a recurring theme, but not a constant theme, you write about a lot of other issues. It is interesting. So so when you're in Oxford, you must have been one hell of a glamorous student. I know you were on the left, and maybe this again is the inner tension because as you mentioned briefly just now, and you mentioned it in the book, you'd published a novel. That is so cool as a student. (laughs) And you were going out, I think, with a famous... TV yes, journalist. Bad mistake. Uh, bad <laughs> mistake. But being cool and on the left, is that okay? Uh, I didn't feel than cool. Because? I felt very unhappy. I really? felt miserable. And I think publishing a novel that came out the first time I was in Oxford was an affront of such a kind <laughs> that, I mean, I was sort of hugely attacked. Or who does she think she is? And the, rub- the novel's rubbish anyway. It wasn't very good. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you're kind of cool and kind of not. And the tensions in Oxford, particularly at that time, the competitiveness about who was up, who was down. I really hated it all and I spent less and less time there uh, and eventually dropped out, which yeah. was a wicked thing to do. You know, I'd had a, an unexpected scholarship nobody expected me to get because uh, I'd been hopeless at school in all sorts of ways. And um, now thinking of giving that up seems quite wicked, really. And it's, again, part of that self-confidence. Well, I'd be all right. I'd fall on my feet. I could do this. I could do that. That self-confidence that you just wouldn't have if you didn't have, you know, a century of privilege, comfort and security behind you. Mm. Which was great for you because you then went into the media and I think you, when you went to the Observer, they all knew your father and all the rest of it. So, so it was great for you. But there is uh, – the book at times is hilarious and so sometimes you get – shocking moments and and so on. But there's also a sort of sad tone, I thought, because at one point you say, you know, if you're on the left, we're just used to disappointment. And when you think of all the characters in the book, you know, your father writing, the commune, your grandfather, you mentioned you were married at one point to Peter Jenkins, you say rather, who was a sort of famous columnist at the time, you say no one has heard of him now. And How do do we put Are all our lives, you know, who've been on that side of politics and in the media or in politics itself, rather kind of pathetic, really, in the end? You know, in that, I mean, you you, you say in the book, you, you just get used to being on the losing side, perhaps not knowing how voters think. Anyway, there is this sad theme, isn't there, isn't there in the there book is. as well? I think there is. And I think Brexit was the final straw, really, of saying, you know, we've spent all of our lives uh, trying to do the best for people with less than us. 
and then they turn around and kick us in the teeth. <laughs> uh, and they happen time and time again. And of course, there never would have been Tory governments if large numbers of working class people hadn't voted Tory. And for most of my life, over two thirds of my life, I've lived under conservative governments, elections being disappointment after disappointment and causes lost and striving and struggling and wondering why, you know, how can we've had five Etonian prime ministers since the war and people haven't rebelled. How is it that people are so unaware of class in some ways? Mm. And there are a lot of things that, you know, it is a life of constant disappointment on the left. It was quite <laughs> interesting. I talking to Daniel Canavan, who knows about these things, said that the research in America had shown that Democrats are much more unhappy people than Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> and I but, think that's probably true of conservatives and people on the left, that if you're on the left, you constantly want more and better and you want reform and you're hoping for things. And if you're on the right, you're pretty complacent and you're mostly in power. <laughs> in power being crucial. You see, it's interesting because uh, you and David Walker, your partner, um, have written a whole series of books chronicling the Tory governments. And they get in each time. And, and yet you would think if only the voters had read your book, they would have been more aware of what actually had Happen so. So why? What, what have you got a theory as to the, <laughs> the why the eternal disappointment? What? 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 I mean, the, the Tories would say we're more in touch with these people, presumably. Well, Tony uh, Blair always thought this was a very small C conservative country, and proceeded with great caution. And I think that's what the Labour people feel now. They tread softly because they feel that you know. Corbyn may have had great policies and all of that, but it proved yet again, as indeed Michael Foote had done, that, you know, a really radical manifesto doesn't get you very far. But I think each time what Labour loses, uh, quite often Labour is to blame. I mean, it was not a good idea to elect Corbyn. It was not a good idea to elect uh, Michael Foote. And it took a long time to recover from that because Neil Kinnock was excellent and brought the party a long way. But it still didn't feel quite far enough. And um, I think you have to reckon with a country that is as as conservative as ours and you have to be persuasive. And I suppose what I've spent most of my life trying to do is to try to persuade people that there are better ways of doing things, there are better ways of living, that actually countries that are more equal are also happier. Mm. And as we grow more and more unequal, there's no sign we grow any happier. Uh, and it's... Um, uh, you know, it's a question of getting those sorts of ideas across. Uh, does it feel forlorn? No. At the moment, I feel incredibly optimistic. I feel more optimistic than I felt for a long time. Mm. I think we're going to have a Labour government, and I think it's going to be a good Labour government. And I think, as with Blair and Brown, it will be more radical than people think, and it will do more than it promises in the beginning. Yeah, I'll come on to that at, at, at the end. Before we leave your book, so to speak, and look ahead, um, you mentioned the 80s there. I mean, that was an interesting time politically for you, as you chronicle in the book, because you decide to join the SDP. Um, and that in itself was interesting because you tried to, like your father, you wanted a unilateralist nuclear policy at the time. So you tried to set that up within the SDP, but that didn't happen. Because that was a disaster. <laughs> it was the only time the SDP was ever violent. Extremely passive party. The first, the very first conference we had, I had a fringe meeting uh, with Bruce Kent invited for 
SDPCND. We got broken up <laughs> by these outraged people, particularly MPs who had left Labour over, over CND. Over CND. <laughs> and, uh, you know, over the fact that, you know, Michael Foote's uh, programme was out of NATO and out of Europe. And it, so it was not a good idea. But at that time, my father was dying. He was passionate about CND. I felt very influenced by him. I'd been brought up to believe the world was likely to come to an end. I mean, when we went on holiday, he always had to take with him a large bottle of pills to kill us all in case the bomb dropped. And once he forgot them, we had to go back and collect the pills again. He did believe the world was coming to an end. He was a millenarian by nature. So I'd been very involved in in CND right from the beginning. And yeah, and obviously it was a forlorn task getting the SDP to adopt it. But it is because one of the reasons, as you know, some people think the left struggle, well, you do, I know, is this fracturing, that, that you've got this one party on the right on the whole, although you, sometimes Farage sets up formidable parties. Um, whereas with Labour, there is this, or the left, there is a, a fracturing. And in retrospect, do you think the SDP was an error um, and that you should have all, to use that cliche, stayed within and to fight? Or, or, or was at that junction in the 80s just an unavoidable schism that had to happen? It's very hard to know, and I veer around what I think about it. I mean, at the time, there was Michael Foote out of NATO, out of Europe, and there was Margaret Thatcher at her most unpopular, one forgets this, she was the most unpopular Prime Minister that had ever been. Unemployment, particularly youth unemployment, had shot through the roof. Uh, the cuts in the first uh, Geoffrey Howe budgets were monumentally dreadful, appalling. Um, so it's not just that there was a little space in the middle. I mean, almost the entire political space, it seemed needed to, to be occupied. It wasn't opportunist. It was a sense of, well, who on earth do you vote for if those are the two polarities? Also a sense that it would pull Labour back to its senses quicker. I don't know if it did or didn't. I mean, Labour would have come to its senses in the end. And I don't know if we made it worse or if we made it happen faster. It's very difficult to tell. But I don't think another split on the left should ever, ever happen. And every time anybody whisper out, let's start a new party, let's say, don't even think about it. I mean, in a sense, Labour and the Liberal Democrats ought to merge, except that it turns out there are an awful lot of Tory voters in these southern seats who will vote Lib Dem, who wouldn't vote Labour. So it's actually not such a good idea. And if they end up in a coalition, that's fine. But um, it is the problem that all along, and interestingly, my grandfather, great-grandfather Gilbert Murray wrote about this. He kept standing for the Oxford seat, losing, losing, losing again. <laughs> um, and he wrote about this. If only, you know, the remnants of the old Liberal Party would get together with the Labour Party, then, you know, we'd be united. So it's been a problem all along, the split on the left. Yeah, yeah. You are very hopeful of a Labour victory and and, and an exciting Labour government. Um now, I can see the, the first, the exciting Labour government is it, it, harder to have a feel for at the moment. Um, why do you feel it? They're very sober characters, both Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves. Uh, careful, sober. And nevertheless, I do think the policies they've put forward are very radical. I think they're actually more radical than certainly Blair and Brown were in the lead up to 97. Mm. They talk about equality, not just equality of opportunity. They're talking about 
28 billion a year to be invested in green growth. Uh, they're talking about by 1930, that's not that by 2030, that's not very long, entirely clean energy, which is phenomenal. So the promises they're making are not at all like the little five little pledges on Tony Blair's pledge card. Um, I think that they're not going to talk about this much, but I am absolutely convinced that the appalling cuts to benefits will be restored. It's not necessarily an election winner, but they'll do it because it's right. Uh, I'm totally shocking that £20 was taken off benefits after COVID and that families using food banks are soared. I don't think they'll tolerate that. Will they be exciting? I don't know, but haven't we had enough exciting? Do we want excitement from <laughs> politics? Do we want them to be showmen and women? Uh, I think probably not. And in some ways, perhaps it's a good thing if people's expectations are rather low and people are busy getting their disillusion in first, saying, oh, well, I don't think they'll be very interesting or they won't be very radical, and surprise people in a good way rather than disappointing them. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. What slightly worries me, only slightly because the polls, I mean, if you look at the polls, they're heading for quite a significant victory. Um, but you remember with Theresa May in 2017, she was getting advice from Nick Timothy, her advisor, to be radical and to say radical things. And she was getting advice from Linton Crosby to say just strong and stable strong and the stable. whole time. Mm. And the whole thing fell apart because half of it was very radical for a Tory, the uh, social care proposal, uh, talking about the good the state can do, industrial strategy and all the rest of it. Uh, and it didn't work. It, it, it was contradictory. It was a mess. And do you think Keir Starmer has worked out whether he wants to convey that strong and stable reassuring message or to be the change maker? Um, 28 billion a year on this, you know, the, into, huge industrial strategy, interventions in lots of areas. Um, can you be both? And she just failed to pull it off in, in, in a fatal way. I think the trick, which I think he is pulling off, is to make his radical policies sound extremely sensible and practical. I mean, people know that you can't get growth unless you invest. And an industrial strategy is what everybody wants. I mean, all over the country, it is a very, very popular policy. You know, in Tory seats as well, people think you should be doing that. So I think that's the knack, is to make it seem like responsible, serious policy, not like some kind of wild stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's why they will not be driven off piste at any point by any of these culture war distractions. Mm -hmm. They just wouldn't want to talk about any of that. Only talk about, you know, industrial investment, green investment, and the NHS and the cost of living. Well, uh, we'll perhaps uh, have another conversation in the build-up to the election. I just want to finally return to the book because it is uh, an utterly compelling read. Um, 
you you mentioned at one point this is not a book about name dropping, but you could do, and you mentioned you saved Hugh Gates' girl from drowning, <laughs> and I, I I don't know whether that was a dramatic story that you could expand on, but but I would I just wanted to ask you. I mean, there are some big figures do recur in the book, um, Roy Jenkins, David Owen, obviously all the figures who have been part of your political life. Do you think? Well, who, is there a the figure you most admire from this book? You could not just the political ones; it could be from your family. Is there someone who kind of has been, for all their faults and eccentricities, which you highlight in virtually every case, uh, a, a hero for you or a guiding figure? I mean, they're not. None of them are quite heroes because human beings aren't no, anyway. No, but they no. all fought the good fight. Yeah, and they may have had their quirks and idiosyncrasies, and some of them may have been appalling parents. I mean. Gilbert Murray was a great fighter for good causes, but a pretty awful parent. Um, so in the round, not exactly heroes, but I do admire people who stick at it mm. and don't get distracted and don't give up and don't despair. Lose, lose and lose again. It kept happening. There's a nice bit where he's Gilbert Murray is endlessly speaking at debates in Oxford and loses every single one of them every time but doesn't give up. And in the end, those issues are won. You know, end of empire, end of colonialism, Irish home rule, all of the things he felt most passionately about, even if not in his lifetime, happened. So that in a sense, the sense of belief that progress is inevitable in the end and that small groups of eccentrics often win in the end, I think is a very important guiding principle not to give up. To cling to, yeah, yeah, the, it, the, which is a hopeful thought to almost end on. Just finally, on on you, I think you, you write at the beginning, uh, or maybe it's just in conversation, I can't remember, that uh, y you have been attacked a lot for your class and privilege, in inverted commas. Um, and yeah, I know a lot of people in journalism, some on the left, not all, of course, who are privileged. Why do you think people have gone for you? Uh, you're, you're revered as well. And maybe it's the combination. <laughs> You've become this legendary figure, but in which so you get the brickbats and the praise. But um, but why do you think this has been a running theme? Um, especially with the expansion of social media and oh yeah, homes in Italy, all this kind of. Mm. Um, with you, I, I, I'm trying. I can't think. Someone said quite so much. That's well, that. It, those attacks, I, I, and I don't know why. I it genuinely... is the Tory press. It yeah. is the Tory press. So they have lots of privileged people themselves Indeed. all the way through it, yeah, yeah. and they never. And then I ended up disclosing what I was earn, earning and having uh, a session in Parliament where they, where one of the committees was 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 asking about earnings, and I fessed up. And there was Quentin Lett sitting there waiting to write something poisonous. I thought, well, he's never going to tell me what he earns, which yeah. is probably five times more. Um, there is a. a a real malice in the right-wing press that particularly hates people in the left-wing press. And they're only just about bearable if they've got meritocracy behind them, if they can claim they've come up from some rough beginning. I can't claim that. No. Uh, <laughs> I've always had a leg up all along. So they can say, there, there she is. She knows nothing about the people she thinks she's representing. Uh, she's ignorant uh, of the working classes. They despise her. Metropolitan elite is the latest uh, yeah. One, isn't it? You yeah, are metropolitan yeah. elite if you voted, uh, for instance, to remain. The fact that virtually half the country voted remain, neither here nor there. It is that idea that they somehow represent real people and we don't. And that's what we have to fight back yeah, against. Yeah, yeah. And you plan to carry on fighting, carry on writing the columns, 
broadcasting, books, and all the rest of it. As long as I possibly can. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, Polly Stoneman, thanks so much. I know you're very busy at the moment doing the normal stuff and reflecting on the book. Thanks so much for joining us today. And that's it for this week's podcast. But do join us again very soon, because just even in this conversation, I was thinking of themes we all need to explore together on the podcast. So have a good time. See you soon. Bye. Bye.